Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Tonight is the uh, fourth lecture of the Theological Bubble of the Story of Shabbat Tzvi. I had hoped to kind of finish him off tonight, but as I wrote through it, it was so uh, complicated, and the books have it all wrong, I mean, I'm serious, uh, because we have new scholarship coming out all the time, and uh, so it's very hard to weave through, at least I found it hard to weave through the different accounts and try to pick out what, is, uh, the, the, what really happened. And so you're getting my take here, which is all you ever do, as I, as I constantly reiterate, and I'm going to pick this up because it really is a soap opera. At the age of uh, tonight's, just for uh, to have it recorded tonight's, the fourth lecture is recorded by, is the, uh, um, and now I'll get right into my remarks. As I mentioned last time, by the time Shabbat Yitzhi was 38, and remember the guy died at 50. Uh, when he, by the time he was 38, he was living in comfort and honor in Egypt. But he's having his own unique form of a midlife crisis. It's a person with issues. The depression is getting too debilitating. The depression is lasting longer and longer and harder and harder. And he's given up his messianism. Isn't that interesting? In other words, he may have been convinced in some form or another that this was the Klippas of the Yates of Har fighting against him and the devil and so on. He said, I can't handle it anymore. In other words, if this is what it takes to be Bashiach, I cannot handle the pain. And depression is, of course, extremely painful. So... At that particular point in his life, when he's 38 years old, he'd be satisfied just to become another scholar in Nigla and Nister, and that's just fine. You know? Let him just go be a regular person. Even in his own mind, with the manic and all the rest of it, he, he saw himself in heroic mode. It, it, it's too much. It's too painful. And remember, he's 30 years old, and he's not married. These two, uh, excuse me, then two extremely um, unusual things trigger his messianist reassertion. And what happens now is better in a movie. In Egypt, now if you recall from last time, he had ended up uh, traveling to uh, Egypt where he won the favor of the top Jew, the richest guy around. The person who was uh, El Supremo among the uh, Egyptian Jews, Ufal Yosef. And he ended up being treated very well by him and then he moved to Yerushalayim for a while. And even though once in a while he got into his Mishigatsim, but overall, Yerushalayim, they were like very uh, understanding of him. And he actually had an extended period, as far as we can tell, in Yerushalayim when he was in a normal phase. And when he was in a normal phase, he was rather charming. And as I mentioned last time, after he was there for a while, it so happened that the Turkish governor arbitrarily uh, jacked up the taxes, whereupon the Jewish community in Jerusalem was really desperate, and they asked people to go out fundraising, and they said, since you have an in with the rich guy in Egypt, you go over there, and he did do it. And when he went back to Egypt, he was able to raise the money and send it back. And so meanwhile, spending time in Egypt, um, mission accomplished, doing well. And then two things happened in his life. And and you, you won't believe this, but it happened. In Egypt, he hears that there's this pretty girl in her 20s in Italy who wants to marry him who's yearning to marry him, which is pretty flattering. No? 
She wants to marry him because she has had visions that he's the Mashiach and that she's his soulmate. Whoa. It gets better. It gets better. She's not Sephardi, she's Polisha. She's a Jewish survivor from the Kazakh stuff. Okay? So she's Ashkenazi girl. This is what, 1650 or so. Uh, not too long afterwards. Uh, excuse me, it's about 10 years later. I'm, I'm sorry, about the late 1650s. Um, how many people are floating around the Mediterranean who are survivors? Um, we know about the people who were killed. Well, we think we do. There's some say 10,000, some say 100,000. We know it's terrible things. And I did this here a couple years ago, the terrible things the Cossacks did. But what about the people who were not killed? As we would call them today, the people went through the camps. The people went through the, through the, through the massacres and all the rest of it. And now I'm going to raise it another level. What about the women <laughs> who went through this stuff? Okay? Which is an entirely different business. Okay? So uh, she's one of them. And she's a uh, survivor of the Cossack massacres. And since she's going to marry him, rumors will fly on the pro-Sabatian side and on the anti-Sabatian side. So it's very hard to find out what the truth is. Okay? Is Hillary Clinton a saint or a sinner? It seems her family was killed. She became the pro property of the Cossacks. And who knows who? The Tatars. So what's it for a girl? And that's all she was a girl at that time. Vervais was a gubernamentaire. And she eventually got away and basically made her way around Europe, alone and friendless, with having only one asset to survive with, which is herself, her body. She ends up, yeah, she was in Amsterdam, she was in Germany, she was here, there, the other. She ends up in Leghorn in Livorno, a poor, pretty Ashkenazi girl in a rich Sephardi community. Leghorn is, is millionaires. Again, this is not a great situation. And here she announces to her friends her dream and her dream boat. In fact, she already announced it beforehand. So she really had dreams. Now, how the heck that happened? She heard a Shabtai. See, you can speculate a thousand ways, but this, this, this is where it is. Shabtai hears about this because there's constant commercial travel throughout the Mediterranean. And Livorno is not that far away from Egypt, you know, by travel. He informs Rafael Yosef this rich, powerful Jew, the Chalebi. And Rafael Yosef pays for her to come to Egypt, where she and Shabtai get married on March 31st, 1664, one, one week before uh, Pesach. So if he's born in 1620, he's 38. Okay? This time, it doesn't happen right away, but it does eventually happen that they consummate the marriage. Okay? Which in his case, is something that didn't happen before. Okay? Um, now, what's the story with this woman? We'll never know because we never met her. And it's, it's a, a person very much written about, but didn't write anything. The Sabatians, of course, deny her immoral background. And the anti Sabatians insist on it. It certainly fit with the famous prophecy of the prophet Hosea who I was going to put in the book, we'll see it later on, if you recall, in a bizarre passage, was commanded by God to marry a whore. Isn't that one of the famous Haftorahs? Book of Hosea. 
And so you see a prophetic figure, a messianic figure does things that are out of whack. You can't do it. I can't do it. But that person could do it. Can this crazy episode have failed to make a huge impact on the self-image of a person who is succumbing to depression? How, Taka, has she really even had such a dream in Italy? This is one of the crazy and weird episodes that will characterize the Sabatian adventure and will simply, and will always, um, how should I say, problematize it so that it's, it's not simply Wizard of Oz, two, you know, uh, clever charlatans fooled everybody. It's, it's more than that. It's, that's not what it is. Now, here, my friends, you better start to get ready for the strangest part of this strange episode in Jewish history. Historians today don't have a good handle on this. And I'm referring to the paranormal prophetic experiences on the part of people, many of whom cannot be dismissed as products of manic depressive psychosis, as I did so blithely in the last lecture. Now I'm going to return to this more later on. But it seems to be a recorded fact that during this period of 1664, 5, 6, there were people like you and I and less who suddenly like fell to the ground or something like this and swooned and started saying things that they couldn't possibly know and say. And nobody knows today how it goes. A servant girl who couldn't read or write falls down in Salonika and then gets up and starts re reciting out loud pa whole passages from the Zohar. You see? Um, a, 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 a barber in, I don't know, Istanbul or something like that says, right now so-and-so was just killed on the street in Rome. But how could you know that? These are called the Sabatian prophets. Now, recent historians, very interesting, have taken, is a guy goldish, whatever. Recent historians have taken, uh, have noticed that uh, it's, it, this is weird. The exact same thing was happening among the Christians and the Muslims at that time. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? Okay. And I'm not sure exactly how they characterize all that, uh, but they attempt to. <laughs> okay. And uh, I'm in France and England, millenarians. In Islam, the, the Sufis and the dervishes are doing the same thing. They're collapsing, going in trance, and they're saying things they couldn't possibly know. So hold that thought <laughs> among the other weird ones. At the same time as the marriage episode, another event was taking place in Gaza, and which will radically impact on us. And I'm talking about the prophecy of Nathan of Gaza, okay? who I hope we'll have up here in a moment, who lived from... Uh, 1643 to 1680. Again, a very short life. Agreed? I mean, he died at the age of 37. So all these people like meteors, you know, they had a short and powerful and very vivid life and then gone. Now, Nathan Gaza, Nathan Azazi, as he's called, is Eretz uh, Yisrael, as we would say today, Israeli Jew, from a rabbinical family. He grows up in Yerushalayim, He's part of that yeshiva community that I spoke about last week, if anybody um, uh, remember, Yaakov Chagiz, and they were trying to revive Eretz Yisrael, and uh, they brought in some elite rabbis, and they were really making a, a, a big push Sephardic now to uh, build up the quality and hopefully, therefore, the quantity of the yeshiv in Eretz Yisrael in the 17th century. And one of the guys in the yeshiva is Nathan Nosan, and it turns out he's the best guy in yeshiva, from best we can tell. All I know is at the age of 18, he knew by heart 
the three, uh, what do you call it? You know, Moed Nashim Zikin. Where I come from, that's pretty good. Okay? So I got smich at 18, you know, at a time when they didn't hand it out so easy. So obviously he knows how to learn. I'll say this. He knows how to learn Gemara a lot better than Shabtai Tzvi. Okay? So he's really, I'll, I'll repeat what I say. He was considered the best guy in Yeshiva, which is why he made a great Shidduch. He married some rich guy's daughter. The guy was a, from Damascus or something like that, but he ended up having his business in Gaza. Believe it or not, Gaza was once one of the four cities where Jews resided. It was Yerushalayim, it was Hebron, it's uh, Tiberia and Gaza. Um, interesting to, in light of what happened today. And there was a Jewish community over there. And so, it's not that far from Yerushalayim. So basically, he's 20 years old, he gets married, he, the, the, his wife, I don't know how old she was, but she wants to live with her parents, totally understandable. And uh, what do you call it? So he lives by the Shver, as they say, and in, in Gaza, and the guy's a millionaire, so you know, you got all the books you want, and there's a little yeshiva there, a little kolo or something like that. There's a synagogue, and so you have the life of Riley. And if you're interested in learning, now this is not a guy who's a party animal or anything like that, it's quite the opposite. He's very learned, very studious, a person of books. And so, um, what he does is, until the age of 20, like many, he's totally into Nigla, into Gemara, and Halach, and that sort of thing. And then, around the age of 20, in addition to that, and in, in a Dominant way, he gets in Kabbalah. That seems to be the age that was popular. And anyway, he's married now, so if you're, you can't study Kabbalah until you're married. And uh, so he throws himself into it, especially the Lurianic Kabbalah, the Kabbalah de Rizal. After all, as I tried to explain last week, he's living in the middle 1600s in the one place in the world which has an actual concentration of genuine experts in Lurianic Kabbalah. They don't exist anywhere else. Everywhere else is second, third hand, and they kind of get it part right and part wrong. Here's Yerushalayim. Tzvat no longer existed at the time. I'm talking about it as a substantial community because of the Turkish or whatever for certain reasons. And so it's Yerushalayim, it's Gaza, and maybe one other place. And uh, this, is, this is the headquarters of those who know. And so he throws himself all to this. He practices ascetism, meaning fasting, again, titling a million times, uh, you know, uh, self-flagellation, who knows what he did, uh, deny yourself sleep, you know, learn through the night and that sort of business. Because he longs to rise in Madregas. Right? They're not doing it for fun. He wants to do like the Ari. Everybody should want to do this. You want to do like Moshe Rabbeinu. Try to see if you can transcend your human limits and connect with Shamayim. And, and he does, or at least he convinced himself he does. And he eventually has an actual nevuah, Not from an email from upstairs, but a nevuah, meaning not a message, but he actually has a vision that lasts for 24 hours that throws him for a loop. It takes, now, <laughs> it takes place the day after Purim, but nevertheless... <laughs> I've had one or two of those myself, but <laughs> yeah, right. But ne- but nevertheless, you know. But after all the jokes are over, it was a it was a obviously a it convinced him, okay, a powerful experience. And uh, in the twenty four hour hour long episode, he he convinced himself he saw the Merkava, which literally means God's chariot. But I mean, I've never done that, but chariot. So knows he saw the mystical, higher realities, and. On the chariot, he saw the name engraved in there, Shabtai Tzvi. That's what he claimed. An angel showed it to him. Now, you have to understand, in Jewish lore, it's not in the Gemara exactly, but uh, there's a famous teaching that seven things were created before B'Yosoa. Maybe some people remember that. A certain a number of things were created before the creation of the world. And one of them is the Kisiyah Kavod, the heavenly throne. And um, on it is engraved the name of the Mashiach. Okay? I actually remember this. You won't believe this from Slichas that we say on some Gedalia, because there's a famous one 
the first Lishi Sein Tungadol was actually written by Rashi. And Gaboch, you know, Shiva Dvarim Ha'im And one of them is Zohar Shem Yinon, the name of Mashiach. So this is what he sees. Now, the angel tells him in his prophecy, I showed you this vision, don't tell it to anybody, don't even tell it to this guy, he will come to you. He will come to you. Now, remember, as I said before, Nathan of Gaza had been the best guy in Yeshiva in Yerushalayim. He made the dream shidduch. He didn't pick out of the Shveres Dabba Dabba. But said he plunged in Luriyah Kabbalah with a definite theurgic intent, meaning he's obviously trying to not simply be very wise, but to do things theurgically, you know, uh, um, affect the world. Within a short time, he started doing like the Arizal. And he was telling people what their sins were and what they needed to repair the damage caused by their sin. In other words, he soon gets a reputation for a holy man. After all, he's not fat. <laughs> you know, He's skinny from fasting. So he gets a reputation for a holy man. And people will come to him locally and then from far away. And he'll do like the Ari. The Ari used to say like this. I know who you were. Right? The Sheikh Khari is full of this. Everybody's a retread. Very few people are original tire. That's extremely rare in the Kabbalistic world. Most people, you've been a retread 5, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 times. In this life... In the year 2015, you're this. 100 years ago, you were that. 500 years ago, you were that. It's very good, the Gilgal, you know. And sometimes you're suffering in this life, you have no idea why. Sure not, you dummy. It's because two, two lives ago, you screwed up in some other area and you still haven't made it right. So how am I supposed to know that? If you go to the right doctor, and I don't mean at the Johns Hopkins University, if you go to the right person, okay, um, they can tell you who you were and they can tell you what your Averis are. Sometimes, the, the, the way the story usually goes is, he'll tell you an Avera that nobody knows about. He says, how'd you know that? He says, oh, see, it's the real thing. And then he says, now I'll tell you Averas that you don't remember because it's from another life or, whatever, or something like that. Or maybe it's something you did as a child, whatever. The point is, as a doctor, he will then pres- prescribe for you penances. You'll do whatever it takes to make this right, to purge it, to get rid of it. Now, I realize this is a very different world than the one you and I inhabit today. Unless you go to these type of people, there are people that do this. Um, so in other words, he prescribed uh, penances. And believe me, the believers were enthusiastic. It's the 17th century. Jews attributed most of their maladies and illnesses to Averis committed in this or other Gilgulim. They're not looking for a modern... Um, yeah, we could skip through all that. Okay. And keep going. Keep going. Uh, that's about Hosea. And keep going. There's a famous picture of Nathan we'll see over and over again. The young age and him and, and, and Shabtai. Okay, so leave it at that. You leave it at that. And um, the point is that uh, if people had some misfortune in their lives or some problem, they would ascribe to spiritual reasons. You understand? Now, if you go to a... What I'm trying to say is like this. There always was, always will be, alternative medicine. There's regular medicine and then there's alternative medicine. Some people into regular medicine, and other people into alternative medicine. Usually, people go to alternative medicine when the regular medicine doesn't help. And so, what does somebody do, if, 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 just off the top of my head, if they're suffering from bipolar in the, in the 1500s? And no regular medicine can help you. It didn't exist. So the doctor will just say, tough luck. Obviously, you go to look for what they call second opinion, you know. And uh, so you'll end up with someone like this, especially a person with reputation as a holy man, Okay, let's go back. Let's go back on this. You, you, you move that back one. So, um, anyhow, this is what happens. 
In an unbelievable irony, Shabtai Tzvi in Egypt is about a year into his first successful marriage. The guy is about 39, 40 years old. He's happily married, trying to get a life, actually to start a life, really. He hears about a holy man in Gaza. He says, I have problems from time to time with the depression. Shabtai goes to see him to find out what penance he needs to do to drive out the dark forces which so often afflict him. To cure the depression through non-Western medicine. It's only a few weeks since Nathan had a nevuah that Shabtai would show up. In other words, when I'm, the episode I'm telling you takes place in Pesach, in April of 1665. Just before Pesach. Some of you can't get a better novel than this. Okay? He, Shabtai is actually going to go to this guy trying to say, cure me of my problem, and of course, what's he going to hear? <laughs> exactly. He said, you're the man. I mean, this is this is better than Shakespeare. Basically, Shabtai says, cure me of my Mishagaz. And the doctor says, it's not Mishagaz. It's the forces of evil trying to prevent you, the Mashiach, from liberating mankind. That's an interesting diagnosis. <laughs> I've had it a few times. You know. <laughs> now, Shabtai, whose pain had put him past this, no, it gets better, because Shabtai doesn't want to hear this. He says, he said, I know about the Mashiach thing. I had this. I send it away. I don't, I, don't, I don't want to go there. It's too painful. Okay? And he was seeking a normal life with a beautiful wife. So he says, Nathan persists. No, you have a superior soul. You don't know who you are, but I do. And so Shabtai doesn't want to listen to this. I mean, it's unbelievable. Okay? So it's the reverse of going to a doctor. The upshot of the whole thing is, I told you, it's happened just before Pesach. That the two men spend the next seven weeks together between Pesach and Shavuot together. Wandering all over Eretz Yisrael, visiting holy sites, Yishalayim, Hebron, and so forth. Constantly conversing. Isn't it amazing? And what's happening during these seven weeks? The doctor is persuading the patient. The patient's not nuts. He's a Mashiach. Okay? Nathan constantly works on a reluctant shop type who was happy to have seven weeks relief from depression. For seven weeks, he didn't have the attack. Nathan is actually a bigger Talmud Chacham than Shabtai, so that's, that's flattering. And also, it seems, a bigger expert in Kabbalah, if you want to get down to technical, especially Lurianic Kabbalah. As they journey together, people see this is just an unusual couple. Jews flock to Nathan <laughs> to learn their tikkun. They don't know who Shabtai is. He's that weird guy in Yerushalayim that you know, walk around with a fish. Nathan Gaza is a famous uh, saint, okay, and a big Talmud Chacham, and a Makubal. And so people will come to him and say, who was I? And what's my problem? What's my issue? What do I need to be Mesachim and Neshama? Uh, now you can laugh at this. This is proto-Chassidism. It's not Chassidism at all, but you get what I'm saying. It's the earliest version of it. Now, by Shavuos, that's seven weeks later, they're back in Gaza, and then Shabtai gets hit by another attack of depression. And he spends the whole holiday in bed. Isn't it amazing? Nathan and Shul at the Tikkun Leil Shavuos makes announcements. Now, I would like to have been there. He says, <laughs> we want to thank Dr. Friedman for sponsoring the lecture. And by the way, Shabtai 3 is Melch HaMashiach. <laughs> you understand? <laughs> Don't forget to pay your dues. Okay? <laughs> so, I mean, you know, Mashiach is coming. And it's this humble guy, Shabtai Tzvi, who won't admit it. His extreme reluctance to take the job, my friends, parallels that original famous Mashiach, a guy named Moshe Rabbeinu at the burning bush.
So he will always be ingenious at pulling these parallels, and they're striking, aren't they? Because, of course, we all know Moshe Rabbeinu. I mean, God says to Moshe, you take over, and Moshe says, I think Chazal say for a week. He says, no, 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 no. Right? And so, it's remarkable. Now, Nathan really believed this. He got so worked up that he started dancing ecstatically with such frenzy, they tore his clothes off. He lost control. You know, in the show, Mashiach, you could come and see, you know, things like that, or is it where and he lost control. I showed you here. Let's go to the next one. Where's the one before? Yeah, the one before. Stop. This is a famous passage in Shmuel. You may, you may or may not remember it. Shaul is chasing after David. And at one point, he corners him together with Shmuel. And then when he, and now you know, so when he catches up with him, they're all prophesying. And one of the things that I'm prophesying is they lose control of their body, like the uh, Ramchal describes, and they feel like they're being twisted inside out, very painful. And when you lose control, you don't even know what you're doing, you tear your clothes off. And so Shaul ends up being naked, prophesying, as it says in the third puzzle. Okay? And it's a sign of a religious ecstasy. Now, I can tell you personally, not as a matter of religious ecstasy, but as political ecstasy. I once saw when I was in Israel, uh, no, it wasn't when I was in Israel. I once saw, uh, ooh, Begin was giving a speech in 81, in the second time he ran for office, out in Petach Tikva. And he's giving one of his speeches, and the crowd is going nuts, right? Begin, Begin. And, I, and, the, and the camera, and it was a hot night, and, it, you know, the, all these voters, a lot of, you know, the, from Eidon and Mizrach, and one guy's begging, but he got so torn, he ripped his shirt off on, 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 on the camera, meaning he was, he was known. It's a frenzy, you see? Now, I've never been in a rock concert if they do something like that, but he got totally, you know, uh, lost control. So anyhow, symbolically for Nathan, it doesn't get better than that, proclaiming Mashiach ben David on Shavuos. <laughs> it's Shavuos. And furthermore, what's the name of the Navi who's proclaiming the reconstitution of the Malchus based David? Nosson. That was King David's prophet. Nosson, yeah? You know that. And so, uh, is, that a, is that a coincidence? Oh, you fool. There are no coincidences in this business. When Shabtai recovers, because eventually he got out of the depression, Nathan finally persuaded him he's a Mashiach. And he meant it. And from now on, so did Shabtai Tzvi. They weren't stam charlatans. That's the point I'm trying to get across. The significance of what I'm saying is that Shabtai Tzvi no longer thought of himself and acted this way only in moments of mania, of manic. Now it's what he believed and did when he was normal. That takes it to a different level. So when he's normal, he's going to find... Before, he used to say like this, I don't know what I just did. Now he's going to say, what I did when I was in an exalted state, as he would put it, was the right thing to do. You see? And um, it's going to create all kinds of problems. From now on, Shabtai throws his energies, his brains, and his imagination into learning his new rule. Now, it's interesting. The depression did not go away. For the rest of his life, he will from time to time be hit by the dark moods. And, it'll just be, and the followers know, don't approach him, he's out of commission. But at least now, they're not simple depression they are messianic battles. So there's great significance to his suffering. And, you know, pain is pain, and nobody should ever suffer pain. But there's a huge difference when somebody feels what they're doing has a, has a meaning versus a suffering that has no meaning. 
What this means is that Shabtai no longer disowns his antinomian acts. Meaning when he does things in his manic moods that violate the, the Torah, Allah, or something like this, pronounce the name of God or something like that, good kid, okay. He no longer says later on, I don't know what I was doing. He no longer disowns them. The opposite, he owns and he justifies them. This is the beginning of principled Sabatian antinomianism as a phenomenon, the most controversial problem in Judaism for the next 150 years. So there will be people who, who hold it to to use the Yeshiva language, to go to do Averis at a certain time at a certain place with a certain state of mind. Nathan of Gaza, by the way, will use his ingenuity to be masbri and bring riots to support the Judaic religious legitimacy of these, what Shabtai calls Hurrah Shah. Isn't that interesting? A Hurrah Shah means ordinarily this is the law, but on certain special cases you can eat trafe. Right? Usually that's the law, but now in a special situation, or maybe because it's a messianic era, knows he doesn't reject the Torah in principle. He just said certain factors have now intervened to justify and allow a different type of behavior. Shabtai Tzvi departs Gaza for Jerusalem on a white horse with a retinue of 40 men. Now how far is it from Gaza usually? They're not that far. They go to the Harbayas, and they try to do some kind of a carbon there when she wasn't Batamas. Oh my goodness. Which from now on will be a not a fast day, but a feast day. There's the let's go to the next one. Here's the famous prophecy in Zechariah, Zechariah. That the fast days will be the feast days when in Mashiach's sight. It just says, provided you love truth, truth and peace. Well, I'm here, so now you know truth and peace are triumphing. You see? We've reached a new uh, moment. At this point, the Jerusalem rabbis, the normal ones, freak out and they prevent Shabtai from doing it. They go say, do not offer carbon over here. Why? Among other things, they have a very simple fear of an Arab pogrom. <laughs> you know, you're, not, you're not living on an island, you're living in the Middle East. I mean, can you imagine what would happen in those years? Uh, in general, this will be one of their big tightness against Shabtai. You're not just kooky, this is dangerous. Why are you acting in a way that can bring a danger, a physical danger in the whole Jewish community. Why don't you have a little sense of responsibility for the others? The Jerusalem Rabbanim, including uh, Yaakov Chagiz, who was the Rosh Hashiva, and Yaakov Tzemach, in desperation, they know what to do. They plot his assassination. Well, that's what you do. You've got to bump somebody off. As they fear his activities will sooner or later trigger a holocaust. No, 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 you're all laughing. If he keeps it up, it'll make a pogrom against everybody else. He's a danger to the entire community. I don't want my children to get killed because the Arab gang, because this nut does it. And who can control him? And so what they do over there is they figure out how, how, how do you knock him off. That, that, that's how they did it. Look, <laughs> the Turkish Empire is not the USA. <laughs> you know, you can, in America, thank God, we go to the next one. In America, you can say whatever you want. You can offer a carpet in the middle of Fifth Avenue and nothing will happen. Okay? Uh, Baruch Hashem. We're talking about the Ottoman Turkish Empire up here. It's not the same thing. You can't go and provoke the Arabs, the Muslims. They accuse him, so they figure like this, let's get him, uh, let's get him uh, framed. This is how life was lived once upon a time, my friends, like it or not. So they accuse him to the Qadi, which is the Turkish judge, 
of stealing the money, the charity funds, you know, that were coming back from Jerusalem. And they figured on Turkish justice, you know. And in Turkey, let's put it this way, you pay the judge, then the guy gets killed, then comes the trial, and then you're found guilty, you know. So, um, but to their horror, they get an honest Turkish judge. There's no such thing. And Shabtai is vindicated, which of course strengthens his case, exasperated, the Jerusalem rabbis excommunicate Shabtai and drive him from the city. Shabtai curses them, but then he withdraws the curse. And so, my friends, miracle of miracles, nothing bad happened to them. <laughs> That's how the Sabatians put it. But Shabtai and Nathan and Nathan will, over the course of the coming year, simply bypass the rabbis like a Chinese general. Meaning that over the course of 1665 and 1666, this rabbi here, that based in there, will say, this guy's a bad guy, don't listen to him, all the rest of it. So you can basically ignore them. The masses will grow a flock in greater, greater numbers to his banner. And eventually, the public will be so hot on this, the rabbis will have to go along. So why even respond to their charges? Why even bother with them? They don't count. Just circumvent them, which is a very brilliant kind of way of approaching things. From this point on, the two men do not meet again. Okay, it's not what you think. Nathan will stay the entire rest of the episode in Gaza. Shabtai will move north to Constantinople, little by little, through land, up through Syria and places like that. Uh, but they'll function as a team. They will truly be... You want to do the next one? Yeah. Okay? Now, well, they will. Uh, by that I mean they have a division of labor. And the division of labor is, one guy is the propagandist, the prophet. Listen, in, in a kingship, there's only room for one king, but there's always room for the advisor or the spiritual leader or the prophet or anything like that. And so Nathan, from day one, set himself up as the number two man. So that makes things very easy. This guy is the figurehead, the, the foremost guy. But what is the job of Nathan? He stays in Gaza, and he's an indefatigable writer. He was a really shivisha guy, and so he's used to... Uh, let, let me um, say this. Once upon a time, there weren't a lot of books. Uh, swarm, physical swarm, especially in the 1600s. There were some. The printing presses started in the early 1500s, but there weren't a lot. And anybody who was wanted to be a scholar, you had to do a lot of physical copying out of books. You know what I'm saying? You know, let's say you have a book, The Shalos and Shibas at Arashba or something like that. It's pretty big. There are very few copies of those. What a person would do if they really were interested in scholarship, they literally copied all out. That's a, a major part of your day is that. Say there's a person who's not like us that we're lazy to write, we, we use the email or something like that. He's a very toxic guy that you can write hundreds of pages in a day. And so he engages over the next 12 months in an unbelievable, indefatigable literary activity. He writes letters all over the Jewish world to uh, the rest of the Middle East, to all the countries in the Mediterranean, like in Italy, and then in, in, in Germany and, and England and, and Amsterdam and places like that. And it's full of all these ideas of Mashiach is showing you coming, right? And not only that, this is a fulfillment of this Pasuk, and I can prove it through the Gematria this way, and this Gemara here, if you read it this way, uh, it definitely fits in with Shabbat 3. He was a very big scholar, so he could do that sort of thing, which is always a problem because, you know, how do you answer those kind of, uh, of things? You know, when, when you're talking about the world of the invisible, I say, I try to bring you Uriah from something, and you're like, how do you know? Moreover, he knew the Kabbalah as well, and the Midrashic literature as well, the normal Midrashim and the non-normal Midrashim, and he had an unbelievably 
vivid imagination. So he's a brilliant individual. Unfortunately, he ends up using his brilliance for bad things, but he was a brilliant individual, and so he could describe all kinds of scenarios. And I told you before, we read in the first time we did the first class over here, that there exists uh, the non-Maimonidean scenarios in which first this will happen, then a king will be here, and somebody will kill somebody there, and they'll be overthrow a thing over here, and a plague there, and he was really in that world, and he did a very good job of that sort of, sort of thing. And so, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll say it again. He's like a one-man Britannica. I mean, he could, he could write en- endlessly, and he writes um, dozens of letters every day. He forged a number of midrashim, which is what people have done in Jewish history down the centuries. Okay? Uh, let me ask you the following question. When you hear a message that you say, we don't hold from it. So who wrote it? <laughs> Somebody somewhere was faking something out. You can't help it. People get so convinced of their own ideas. You understand? Either that or, or, or they're having fun. Okay? So it seems over here that he had a, a very vivid imagination. At the same time that he's doing this, I want you to understand, he stays in his home in Gaza, and every day hundreds of Jews from all over the Middle East flock to him, like Hasidim go to a Rebbe, Lahavdo, um, who come for Lurianic exposés of their true soul identity and the necessary tikkun, which is what I told you before. What am I doing wrong? Why am I, why am I having trouble raising my children? Why, how, how come my oldest son doesn't listen to me? How come my daughter doesn't listen to me? What is it? My neighbors are doing good. What happens? And he'll say like this. Because you did such and such, or your mother or father did this and this, or your ancestor did this, or you back in, and when you were around three did this, and here's what you need to do to do that. You see? And people are yearning for this. And Nathan was a uh, Lurianic Kabbalist and a Chassid in the old-fashioned sense. And as a result, when I say a chassid, he's into harsh penances. That's what you do. And if you're into harsh penances, what they'll say is like this. You did this and this in a ver, so fast for the next 90 days. Or 10 months. Or things like this. You know, and every uh, you know, 48 hours, eat a crust of bread or something like that. You know, he does that. Or go and get yourself whipped, you know, 200 times uh, on Arab Shabbos. Or, you know, things like that. And people say, oh, great, because... If you really believe that this will get rid of the problem, a person would embrace it. I mean, chas v'chalila, suppose somebody heard that they have a terrible illness. The doctors told them they have a terrible illness. And somebody could say, if you take 300 lashes, the illness will be gone. You grab it. Right? Not that anybody wants a little bit of lashes, but when you think of the, of, of, the, of the payoff. So that's how people were thinking at that time. And the result is that he gets this reputation, as you see in the next one over here, of being a pie piper. There's, there's Nathan of Gaza. This is a Dutch woodcut. And behind them are all the masses of Jews and the armies of Israel. And they feel he's leading them on, you know, glory, hallelujah, and so forth. And uh, his main task is to sell Shabtai Tzvi as the Mashiach. Now, he does do it. But this is a challenge. And this is what I want to get into. It's almost like you might say the heart of my remarks tonight. As we saw, because... I have to get involved to a certain, a certain degree in, in um, what shall I say, uh, uh, philosophy, theology, over here. Um, the number one problem is that nobody knew exactly what the Mashiach was going to be like. There was a whole big debate in the Middle Ages we saw between the Rambam and the others, whether the Mashiach has to perform miracles. After all, Shabtai Tzvi couldn't perform miracles, or he didn't. You know, I mean, people wanted serious miracles. On the other hand, the Rambam said, the Mashiach will not have to do miracles. So let's go with the Rambam. Okay, so all of a sudden the Rambam in the next slide becomes the man. 
Okay? But wait a minute. If you go with the Rambam, the Rambam has a checklist. Remember that? He says, if somebody wants to claim to be Mashiach, you got to do stuff. Where is the battle with the enemies of the Jews? The delivery and the conquest of Eretz Yisrael? The bringing of Carbonus and the binyan of the base of Migdash? I mean, where's all that? And Shabtai didn't do any of that. So Nathan, to explain this, falls back on basic concept of the Arizal, Valuria, and Kabbalah, which are out there. But of course, he molded it within his genius, evil genius, whatever way, to fit his message. And this is how the whole Shabtai Tzvi episode unfolded. Because as I've said a hundred times, it's not surprising that there might be people who imagine somebody's Mashiach. What's surprising is how come people believe it in large numbers? Where do you get traction? That's the question. Right? That's the historical question. And so in order to answer this, I'm going to give a, sh- a short quote from a famous Lurianic Kabbalist tract from the 18th century, which is called the Orachayim, and, you know, on the Chumash. Right? The Orachayim HaKadosh, as the Hasidim call it. There are three books that they always say HaKadosh. The Shloh HaKadosh, the Alshad HaKadosh, and the Orachayim HaKadosh. So the Orachayim Chaim Benatar was a Moroccan rabbi Kabbalist who also didn't live a long life. He died before he was uh, 50. And uh, he's originally from Morocco, and then he spent time in Italy, ended up in Israel in the 1740s. And he was there for a short time, and then he died. So that just increases the remnants and the mystery of it. And before he died, he founded a yeshiva, a Kabbalistic yeshiva in Yerushalayim, which is still there today. Okay? So some of you, I'm sure, have been Rechov Orachayim and all that stuff in the old city and whatever. Now, um, he's a big person. And Orachayim... Uh, among other things, wrote this famous commentary in the Chumash, which the Baal Shem Tov put on the, uh, made it number one on the bestseller list. Because the Baal Shem Tov, who lived at the same time and never met him, uh, had a soul connection with him, the Hasidim say, and he totally fell in love with this parish. And it's because of that, when the first Mikras Gedos were published in the modern format by Hasidic book publishers in 1780s in Poland, they say you have put Chumash, uh, Unkelis, uh, Rashi, Ibn Ezra, and Ramban, the old Mikras Gedos, and the Orchaim. Right? And if you're real chassid, I mean a real, real, real chassid, you, do have, you, you don't only do shnai mikra vecha de targum, you do shnai mikra vecha targum, well, I'm not finished, and you do it plus you rashi, I'm not finished, and then you do orchayim. Real, I mean, uh, okay. Now the orchayim has a very interesting and unusual commentary, his thing on the Chumash is quite large, and the reason I say it's unusual is because it's a mixture of all kinds of different approaches. Sometimes he's radically into pshat, and he says these real left-wing interpretations, other times he's in the middle of the road, and sometimes he's all the way out in the right field. When he's out in the right field, he's in Kabbalistic. One of the famous places he is, is in Vayechi, Parsha Vayechi, where Yaakov Avinu, of course, is blessing the sons. Now, of course, if a regular person gives a blessing to the son, that's just poignant and cute. If Yaakov Avinu has to do with the future, it has to do with spiritual. And so, in the context of Yehuda, he says to Yehuda, Gurar Yehuda, Miteref Bini Olisa, which is hard to translate, Miteref Bini Olisa, which you could, if, if, if you understand the Pasuk, you'll understand you could read it two ways, Miteref, Bini Olisa, or alternatively, Miteref Bini, Olisa, making a reference to the fact that he somehow or other transcended the sale of Joseph, even though Yehuda was involved with the sale of Joseph, but nevertheless, Yehuda is the one who said, Ma why kill him, let's sell him. And in the course of this, the Orachayim raises certain issues, and then he says the following, and I'm only going to, it's a long passage, I'm only going to read a short one, 
And those of you who are capable or interested will follow this up when you're on that. I told you where the place is. And what he says is, I can explain the order of Sukkim and the language in the Chumash based on, first you have to know a little bit by way of Hakdama, by an intro, which is Zakobar, which is pure and clear. Which is very enlightening for the Torah, meaning it's Kabbalistic. <laughs> and what does that mean? Imagine, now this is a metaphor. Let's be very clear. It's almost like, you know, every minute has to flash on the screen. None of this is literal, because we're all going to get carried away with the metaphor. But I said it, so I'm yotzin my part. And he says, imagine Adam and Eve, Adam being a giant tree. And the tree has, and I'm going to use Cat's language, not exactly his language, to make it easier for you to understand. Imagine the tree has a bunch of apples on it. I mean, a lot of apples. I mean, millions of apples. Okay? And then comes the sin of Adam, they eat from the Eitzadas, whatever. And uh, imagine that the, 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 this is expressed in the sense like a certain earthquake shakes the tree badly. And what is the result of that? All these apples, a lot of them, fall off the tree. Okay? And they roll around, in some close, some far from the tree. And the Kabbalistic books write that many of the souls that fell down were of great human potential, as we would say. So that's that's the part I'm just going to read for you, and now I'll explain it. And these are basic concepts, Luri Kabbalah 101, but most people don't know. Imagine that each one of these is a Kabbalistic idea, and I'll say it again a third time. None of this is literal, but nevertheless, you get very wrapped up in the imagery. So imagine each one of these apples falls off. Each one represents a neshama or something like that of a, of a human being. Um, falling off the tree is not the proper relation of things. If the tree originally was one in which the apple was attached to it, especially this apple was attached to this branch and that apple was attached to that branch, it means whoever made the tree had it out in a certain way. And when it's in that certain way, things are good. And when things are not in that certain way, then there's something less than good. And if a lot of them fall off, things are pretty lousy. And so the result is that if you see all these apples or whatever is falling off the tree, that's a certain way of describing an imperfect world that became imperfect as a result of the fall of man, the exile of Adam and Eve from Eden, the rise of evil, mortality, all the things that, the pain of childbirth, all these things manifest that that things are not in the proper order. And if you want to make them in the proper order, you have to reattach all the apples. Somebody has to go and reattach all the apples to the tree. Now again, I repeat, it's not literal, but it's a tree. How does one do that? He says, this is the task of the Jewish people. Okay? That everyone, this is your number one task in life. To restore Eden, paradise. Paradise regained. That's the number one task of life. When you do a mitzvah or something like that, it's supposed to be, if you knew, unfortunately most of us don't know, but if you knew, then you'd understand that you're not doing it stam the Velterein, you know, because of mitzvah, or even because God said to do it, and yes, sir, you know, whatever you say, I follow. But it's part of a grand scheme. And so for argument's sake, let's just say there's a number we can attach. 
4,327,248,015, right? Let's say that's the number of apples or souls. Well, let it be 10 times, so it doesn't matter. So the world will not be rectified, right? Things will not be made right until each and every one of those apples is somehow or other picked up and brought back to the tree and reattached to the tree. Oh, it gets a lot more complicated than that. Because first of all, a lot of these apples got dirty along the way. So you're not only going to have to pick it up and move it back, you have to brush it off, make it worthwhile to reattach. Oh, it gets much more difficult than that. A lot of these apples along the way, what actually happens? I'm trying to explain this in simplest terms possible. What actually happens if apples fall off a tree? After all, they rot. So in this case, they don't talk about rotting, but they talk about clepus. Okay? Which is a whole science to this. Which is Kabbalistic science. So if a tree, if the apple falls off, it may possibly, very often happens, that not only is it now in a distance from the tree where it's not supposed to be, but a shell of tumah or evil or something like that has um, enwrapped it. So what I have to do is I have to locate this apple and then crack the son of a gun open. Right? T- t- some other, t- take that outer shell off, extract the good part, toss or whatever you do to the klipa, and then go proceed and reattach it to the tree. It gets even better than that. Matter of fact, those who are familiar with the Kayonam and his famous uh, pre Yom Kippur sermon that he published in a book, he says sometimes the klipa, there's a science to this. The klipas, according to the theory, by the way, exist in a parasitical form. They have, the evil has no life of its own. It only can uh, suck out the other. So if uh, the klipas get a hold of a particular apple and nobody ever rescues it, eventually the apple will die because they will have taken all the nutrients out. There'll be nothing left. And every once in a while, this is just cute, every once in a while, the klipas will say like this, oh, the apple's losing nutrients, so we have to resupply with nutrients to keep, our, to keep us supplied with a source of sucking it out of them. And so uh, in the Musa books, they'll say like this, that explains why it is every once in a while a person gets a hysoris for a little while to do a mitzvah, to be very zealous in some area, but then after a while it goes away. You understand? So imagine in simple terms, a person never goes to Davin and Shoal. And all of a sudden, there's a son of a gun. It's 5.30 in the morning, they're out of bed with no problems. You get it? And for a month. And then a month later, they're tired again and they don't get out of bed. What happened? Well, that's a bad sign. Do you see? So I'm trying to introduce you to the notion... There's a world of ideas out there in Judaism which are of major import but most of us today are not familiar with. Even though it's in the books, like I said, Or Chaim is one of the major commentaries on the Chumash. I mean, it's not like it's a hidden sort of thing but I just read to you. Now, to get to our situation, uh, the Arizal and the other Kabbalists make this even more complicated because of the question of quality and quantity. You see, I do a mitzvah, and this person does a mitzvah. Let's say she's a great tzaddikist. I'm just a regular guy. So the effect of me doing, and let's say we're both talking about, I don't know, uh, keeping Shabbos. So when I do it, uh, I do keep Shabbos. You know, another Saturday. I don't do anything wrong, but I don't do it with a, mm, like that. But she does, or he does. So the effect of my keeping this particular Shabbos is, so to speak, to walk over to one of the apples and give it a good kick in the direction of the tree. But this lady, who's the big tzaddikis, 
If she keeps Shabbos, she actually gives it a like a, a, a soccer kick <laughs> and gets really much closer to the tree. Now, if she happens to be or he happens to be a Kabbalist and they understand the pipe works that exist in the metaphysical world so that when one keeps Shabbos or Kashas or any of the other mitzvahs and they know that they say, I'm going to do this mitzvah, like I say, there's a lot of this with benching lech, you know, because they have a lot of these uh, Lurianic uh, kavanas for, for benching lech. So, if you, you know, you want it to go this way, and then the tefillah should go this way, and up here, and until it finally gets in the right way in the case of the and the Rube Goldberg machine, if you know how to do that, you can actually pick that apple up and physically transport it over to the tree, and, 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 with, the, and with the right Luriana Kavonos, if you know how the result really works, you can mamash be attached to the tree. If someone is a real Bakubal and a real Tzaddik, I'm talking about someone who fasts, who thinks about God all the time and all the rest of it, you can even crack the cleep open. You can do quite a job. And if we have supermen and superwomen, they can do it to multiple apples. Theoretically, someone could be a super tzaddik or a super tzaddikus and do half the job or three quarters of the job. Theoretically, they wouldn't be a person like you or I, but it could be done. You understand? So you need a person who is kabbalistically superior, okay, who. Um, knows everything I'm just talking about, who understands that he knows in the different pipe works, and whose entire engagement with mitzvahs is quite different qualitatively than yours and mine. It's a different world. Ain't too many of those around. See, that's the problem. Moreover, the thing gets complicated by the fact that every time you do a sin, you make it worse. <laughs> so if you do something bad, you actually kick the apple farther away from the tree, don't you? And so life is one gigantic football game in which you're trying to get the ball <laughs> to, to the other side, but we keep messing up and it keeps coming back to our side. Now, regular people, as they say, like you and I, we can only do a little bit. We could do more, but we don't. But superhumans, right, superhuman people, that spiritual superhumans, can, you know, uh, make up for the deficiencies of many others, and they can give us such a uh, quality move that they can do amazing sorts of things. Okay? Now, this is what I'm talking about. This is mainline stuff. Um, there's one more uh, piece of this. Some of the... Well, I'll precede it by saying like this. So here's Nathan of Gaza writing out all these letters, and what he's saying is like this. Here's this guy, Shabtai. See, he's amazing. He's exactly the type of individual that I just described. Take it from me. <laughs> okay, that's what it is. Take it from me. And he's uh, waging... Major wars, and he's doing oodles and oodles of apples, if I can use that term, right? And it's just incredible what he's doing. Believe you me, the forces of Ra are trying to, are very upset, and they're trying to take him down. That's why he has these dark moods and things like that. There is a titanic battle happening. A titanic battle. But he doesn't care. He's getting there. And to use football terminology, he's, you know, at the 30-yard line, and then Nathan of Gaza would send a month later, he's at the 25-yard line, and pretty soon you're getting to, you know, like to the one-yard line. You're about to get a touchdown. Now, people couldn't imagine, because who could? No one would write this if it wasn't about to happen. Harotza Lashakir, how do they say? Yachigay you know. If a guy wants to lie, he'd use other terminology. He'd say, oh, it's real. We're at the 90-yard line. It's real hard. We're getting there. We're 90, you know, 89 and a half. He'd do a half-life, you know, 89 and a quarter, and so forth. He's No, he said, we're, 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 we're really getting there. 
and the pains and sufferings that this man is having are not just you know you know a bipolar or something like that. They're, it's it's the rod that's getting there. He takes it even farther, and and more controversially, um, which we'll engage with in a minute. But I'll I'll tell you about it now since we're on the subject. Let's say some of those apples didn't only fall down near the tree; some rolled far away. So that takes a big effort to go a mile, two or three, if necessary, right? And then bring it back. That's obviously much greater effort than something fell a foot away. What if something happened, let's say it rolled down and fell in the bottom of a, of a dank and dark swamp full of crocodiles and ugly creatures and worms and who knows what kind of barracudas there or something like that, you know? Oh yeah, yeah. How am I ever going to get that apple from down? That's never going to happen. There's only one way. What's the one way that that could happen? Somebody have to jump in and, and, and swim to... We need a hero to do it. Right? Tarzan can do it, you know? You need a hero to do it. Not me. Not him. What if it fell under a big pile of goat dung? Or things like that. Who would it... Somebody's got to do it. If you want things to be right, if you want the end of war, the cure for cancer... The rise of genuine universal peace, not these Obama things, right? Yeah. He said, well, it's not funny. He says, if you, if you want that, somebody's got to do it. Now, I'm not doing it. You're not doing it. I know somebody that's doing it. You see? And so here we have an entire theology being composed on the fly over the course of X number of months in the second half of 1665 and the first half of 1666 by this guy who's a, who's a one-man you know, uh, a printing machine, and he's writing letters to Constantinople, to Rome, to Livorno, to Morocco, to England, uh, to Amsterdam, and to Germany, to Poland eventually, and places like that. And it's very impressive if you fall into it. The reason I'm going through this whole thing is now you can understand, if you buy into it, I repeat, if you buy into it, how he sort of bypassed the whole Maimonidean model, didn't he? Because the Ramam says he got to do so. He is doing things, but it's, you can't see it. And so the letters of Nathan Ogazai once said should be characterized as bulletins from the battlefield of the invisible. Now, it's not open-ended. This was why attraction. He said, it's coming soon. We're at the 10-yard line, we're at the 9-yard line, we're at the 1-yard line. And I'm sure you know, without me even telling you, and I'll get into this next time, Shabtex, he did go to the Sultan of Turkey. So in other words... He really bought into this himself somehow. You know what I mean? Otherwise, he would have said, no, I'll get there tomorrow, manana, and all. And then, no, it's not true. He, he went there. And so they persuaded themselves that it's the right gematria, and it's the right year, and it's the right this, and Shabtai Tzvi is the same initials as Shakai. And there's a, there's a million ingenuity things in there. The mathematicians, the scientists would love him because he's into number things and, and word things. It's, you know, it's it, it, endlessly. He's a very ingenious type of person. Now, um, in order to do this, what you're really saying is, what the Rambam says is true, but it's going to be at the end of the process. When Shabtai II goes to Turkey, and he talks to the Sultan of Turkey, the Sultan will say, please take my crown, sit on my chair, take Eretz Yisrael, I'll kick the Arabs out for you, and I'll send you the money to build the base on English. And he will actually do it. 
So the things the Rambam says, Elochem Nochem Hashem, Hilbona Hamigdash, he'll bring back the Kavarus, is about to happen. He didn't say that these things are wrong. He just said the process by which it happens takes place in the invisible world, and you must believe. <laughs> Here we go back to the Rajbah, right? You have to have a Muna. The people who will be the followers of Shabbat in 1665 and 1666, and afterwards will call themselves the Ma'aminim, the believers. And uh, in the letters of, of, of Nathan Gaza, fideism, or just pure belief, is, uh, you know, the thing that's going to bring the Geula, and whoever doesn't, and, and you can't ask a sign from him. It's the reverse of the Rajbo, you understand? You can't ask any questions, you just have to believe. The Catholics have a doctrine called fideism, which I just mentioned this morning, which, which holds that faith is a more a sound way of, of apprehending reality than reason. There's, there's such a concept. You know, and later on the Hasidic movement will take this and use it. All the Hasidic stories are like that. You know, the doctor said it can't happen, it can't happen, but the Rebbe said it'll happen, and it happened. So it turned out, what did medicine know? But the Rebbe knew. You see, says so is that kind of idea, and he takes this and applies it to this guy Shabtai and if we got traction, because it kind of makes sense if you follow everything I'm saying. But this could never have happened in the 1500s or 1400s or anything like that because these Lurianic Kabbalistic ideas were not out there that everybody knew them the way I'm, uh, I'm laying out to you. And so the result is that he was able to, to uh, do this. Now, Shabtai, Tzvi, as we'll see, every once in a while did this antinomian stuff. He's treif. He makes a bad bracha. He stops at davening. These weird things. I mean, he didn't go do major type of eras. He always did these ritualistic sorts of things, like eating chalev uh, and things like that, making brachas on them, or, or, or crazy things of that nature, you know, hitting the Sefer Torah or whatever. Uh, how do you explain all that? No, no, no. You explain all that, listen closely. He's doing a public service. He's in the bottom of the goat dog. He's at the bottom of the swamp. In, listen closely. In order to rescue that apple, I've got to go and swim down there, and I get dirty in the process. You see? I'm willing to get dirty and filthy in the process for the ultimate good. Because if I can then rescue that apple and bring it out and wash it off and reattach it to the tree, it will have been worth it. Like we see in the next one. Right? You invade Uganda to bring out the... Right? It's worth it. You bring out the, 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 the Jews, the prisoners. You understand? That's exactly how it is followers saw him. That's exactly how Nathan of Gaza put it over. He's doing these sins, but he's doing these sins what they call mitzvah bo baver, which is a different interpretation than it's usually understood. I understand that. But the re- he's saying like this. If a regular person eats a ham sandwich, then he's just a, a bum. If someone knows what he's doing, and again, it's not for everybody, if somebody knows what he's doing, he will eat the ham sandwich so he can enter the realm of evil with the purpose of bypassing this, that, and the other, and finding the spark of Kedusha that lies within all this, and extract it and take it and bring it back like the, the, the victims of Uganda. Now, you've got to admit, this is a very handy kind of theology for someone who wants to be a lowlife, and there will be a lot of that in the 18th century. But I'm talking about what it says over here. I mean, you know, somebody says, I'm going to a wild party because it's really to, to liberate the Klebus. That will happen in... No, no, that will happen in later Sabatianism. But that, that'll be a problem in the 18th century. Right? But in the original context, he wasn't doing anything like that. He was, as they say, happily married man. Okay, so you, you know, what, 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 what wasn't like that, but the specific weirdisms 
were interpreted within the framework of the, of, of the set of ideas that I just outlined for you. And instead of doing something wrong when you, you know, something crave, it becomes something heroic. Okay? Now, this is the way he explained it. By the way, if it's really five minutes to 12, meaning if, the, if, if he's on the one-yard line, he's on the 10-yard line, pretty soon the Mashiach Mamash will be here, meaning he will reach his full uh, uh, bloom and the world will change. Then great tribulations, my friends, are upon us. This is what Nathan writes. Because in the Tanakh and in the Gemara and all the Midrashim, we all know, Chevli Mashiach, the Messianic year will be apocalyptic, right? It'll be eschatological, it'll be, uh, you know, full of all kinds of uh, uh, wars, cataclysms, and things like that. Um, and so the Gemara says many often, Yesi Veloyachmini that the people who knew about how hard the times are going to be when Mashiach comes will say, let him come, but I don't want to be there when it's over. Like in the book of Daniel, he's told, he says, listen, you know, you'll be dead before this happens, so you'll sleep through it all, and then you'll rise after it's all over. That's what the angel tells Daniel. See, I'm nothing to worry about. But the people who are going to be in there are going to go through a very hard time. So only those, and by the way, it's about, it's about to happen, because Shabtai is about to go to Turkey, and, and, and then starts the tribulation, the great wars and the sufferings. Only those who have repented and, and repaired their souls through a proper penance will be spared the tribulations, which will be worse than anything imaginable, says Nathan. Letters to this effect are dispatched everywhere. It sounds from. After all, if you really, really, really thought the Mashiach is coming any minute, you would repent, wouldn't you? You'd think. Thus, as rumors spread over the course of the year throughout the Jewish world, r- rumors plus letters from Nathan of Gaza, people actually stopped talking in Shul. This is recorded. Yeah, don't worry, the whole thing fell through, you know. He said, right. right? People, you know, no, no. P- bitter enemies who are fighting for years over Narishkite, Tucker made up. It's incredible. You understand? You know how it goes, like two Polak, two Hungarians are fighting over something, two businessmen, and then they said, let's bury the hatchet. After all, pretty soon the Mashiach will be here, we both should make it through. You know? And many things like that. People who were like in the Western Portuguese Sephardim in Amsterdam, who never were particularly careful about keeping Shabbos. Oh, now? Oh, boy, oh, boy. They keep it down to the 39 Malacha, you know, paragraph C in the Toldos. It's, it's very, very serious. Kashras gets an upgrade. Everybody takes everything seriously. Now, let's put it this way. Um, as I said before, Nathan had demanded fideism and faith, and, and, and people did do it. This put all the rabbis in a quandary. Why? I like what I... Speaking as a rabbi, I like what I see. <laughs> you know what I mean? And nobody's talking. Everybody's, nobody's fighting. People are actually nice to each other. <laughs> right? No fights in the carpool. <laughs> it's incredible. You get it? They know what to do. Um, here, take a look at the next picture. Uh, one after this. Here. here, somebody made a picture of voluntary penances. I... Uh, can't see so well myself. But if you look, if you look closely, you can see some people being whipped. Isn't that right? He's, he's hitting them, and this guy's freezing this guy in the ground. You see people voluntarily being uh, uh, flogged, people in freezing water, uh, I mean, all kinds of things like that. Right? And they're all, by the way, they're, they're flocking voluntarily. They say, please do it to me. And so, uh, what does that mean? People say, yes, I got a lot of sins, I got to purge them. That was the attitude. 
Tell me what I need to do to make this right. And by the way, in that kind of an attitude, the gal said, listen, you and this guy are fighting over that hotel argument you had and so forth. Settle it. You know, make it go away. Don't drive the basins crazy in each other, you know. Just go away. And, the guy, and, and they did. A guy would say this, you know, you, we, you and I have been fighting over $15,000. Michael, after all, in another five minutes, none of it will matter. You see? So you can't help but like that at some degree. Um, meanwhile, Shabtai Tzvi travels to Istanbul. So little by little, he's heading north from Yushalayim, where he was kicked out, through the north of Israel, he stops a little bit in Tzvaz, a little bit in Damascus, and he mainly settles for a while in, um, in Aleppo. Okay? Yeah, well, here's the map. Take a look at the next, the next one, please. Right? If you look at the top of the map, right, you'll see it. He's right, Caleb. And so he travels, in other words, makes the land route, not the sea route, through Syria. And there are Jewish communities, significant ones, particularly in Aleppo. And there, the letters of uh, Nathan have already preceded him. He's received like a king. He comes through through with a parade. It's like a ticker tape parade. And he's like received like a Mashiach. And aside from Nathan's letters and Shabtai's journeys, rumors anyway begin flying in 1665 throughout Europe and Asia. Meaning, since the Jews are chattering along the south of Mashiach Yagakumen, so Christians and Muslims, we have this a lot of records. Gershon Shon collected all this stuff. Uh, they all, rumors are flying in the Christian imagination. The ten lost tribes have reappeared as a mighty army. That's what I heard. They're a Jewish ISIS. Okay? They're destroying and massacring wherever they go. In fact, they've already wiped out Mecca. These are the big rumors on the Dutch stock market. Let's go to the next one. This is ISIS now. That's how he saw the Jews. This is what they heard. All right? A mighty Jewish army is coming from somewhere. By Russia, and, and, and when it hits Europe, you know, uh, by Rosh Hashanah of 1665, it's gone to their heads. Nathan and Shabtai, you know, believe their own story, you know, fully. They, 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 they are really in it. The last apple is basically, Nathan is saying, it's been reattached to the tree, or, or just about. The, as a result, Nathan sends out letters the Kavanas are Rizal or Bottle. The Lurianic Kabbalah Kavanas are now um, officially retired. They're no longer necessary. Basically, everything's been done by this guy. Which makes him, by the way, an unbelievable public servant. He's like, I'm not sure He really suffered, you know, and did everything on behalf of Kal Yisrael. Nathan's imagination, while he and he, he and Shabtai really engaged in a gematria goes wild correspondence. I mean, you know, they, they, if you're living at that time and even later years, oh my goodness, every capital tilum, you know, backwards is Shabtai Tzvi, and every, this is a, it's the same thing as that. By the way, there are many, there are many uh, customs that will pop up around this time and afterwards about certain prayers to say, and the anti-Sabatians will always be opposed to this because they say it's really hidden gematrias for Shabtai. I think that's why the Yekis don't say Brikshmei, that's why the Vilna Gondonzi or David Hashem Ori. There's a lot of these sorts of things where they, where the rabbi, you know, it got into the public uh, parlance, but if you chase it down to its origins, it's a uh, Sabatian. You understand? Even the public doesn't realize it. I remember the Tshuva Me'avo, the famous response to Sefer from Lezer Flekulis in Prague. Very interesting book. He, he has a whole list of things that people do wrong 
and they don't realize that there's a Beitian in origin. You understand? So, interestingly, as far as the Turkish government is concerned, the authorities have not intervened, which only makes things more interesting. The Turks don't take anything off anybody. And meanwhile, they're letting this happen. The Jews notice this, and they consider this mamash must be a Moshe Mashiach. There's a way, no way to explain that a guy is proclaiming himself the emperor of the world, is going to take over from the Sultan of Turkey, and the Turks don't do anything. Nathan writes to them that Shabtai will go straight to the Sultan, who will voluntarily become his servant. I'm telling you, people believe he's going to walk in the palace, and the Sultan say, I've been waiting for you, Bavakasha, please take my crown. Right? And to, I'm telling you. Subsequently, after the Sultan of Turkey does it, the other rulers will do it. You know, China will come 10 minutes later, the Emperor of India later, and so on and so forth. The Jews will be a master race. And they talk this way. Uh, so they figure, here, let's, let's the next one. Yeah, there's a Sultan Muhammad IV, who was a young guy. He was like 20 or 22 at the time. And uh, it was a nice guy, too, as Ottoman sultans go. <laughs> yeah, he chopped off fewer heads than others, right? Um, anyhow, the point is, uh, the point is, he's going to, you know, take that thing off his head and give it and give it to Shabtai and be, you know, be, be the ruler of the world. And the Jews, look, the image is so powerful, it sweeps the Jews who start acting towards the Goyim with a new confidence, which totally discombobulates the Goyim. Here's a Jew in Hungary and Poland in the 1600s. Ordinarily, he goes, you know, but that's what that's what you do. You understand? Know you kiss the hand, you bow down to the other one. And now this guy says, he says, you get out of my way. And the Polish guy or somebody says like this. Either he's insane or maybe he knows something. And so you see the Polish noble will step aside. The German, uh, you know, uh, uh, citizen will, will step aside. <laughs> you understand? Know it's, it's, it's an unbelievable bluff. But for five minutes, people said, he couldn't do this unless there's something really there. In England, they're writing all these things. Oh, we talk to have evidence from Protestant millenarian writings that 1666 is supposed to be the year the Messiah is coming anyway. This is starting to come together. Oh my God, England's going to be taken over by the Jews, you know, things like that. Um, now, the, in Aleppo, where Shabtai is staying, the Jews stopped working after all, it's Mashiach time. They spend all their time doing teshuva, tefillah, tzedakah. When I say teshuva, I mean penance. You know, they're going around flagellating each other, whipping each other, making up and this sort of thing. The rich, now how do you, how do you survive without living, uh, without working for a living? The rich live off the bank accounts, and the poor, they set up offices for all to support the poor. Everybody becomes, all the rich are very nice. After all, the sheikh will be here. You, you want this on your resume, you know? So he says, so he says I give a, give a lot to charity. So everybody, all the Jews, everybody's nice to each other. Shabtai, who's in Aleppo, charms everybody, right? Even the Rabbonim and the Rosh Hashivas, uh, fall for it. They think it's. They, they think this is it. This is it. They start writing letters. The fa- Aleppo was a famous headquarters of Sephardic scholars, Rabbanim, Gedolim, and all that. They you know, take it from me. And uh, they write letters confirming and praising Shabtai. Now, what would you do if you got a letter from, uh, say, Rav Gifter or something like that? Shabtai sees the real thing. You conclude that those rabbis who condemned him. Let's go to the next one. Those rabbis who condemned them must have misunderstood him. I mean, sir, let's just pretend. Because that's what you had. The people I'm talking about, who the Rabbanim and Aleppo, I mean, they're like, you know, Rabbi Rudin, Rabbi Gifter, you know, leading authorities that all the other people looked up to. And so, he couldn't have bamboozled them. This must be really it. Okay? 
And so, from Aleppo, Shabtai travels to Izmir, back to his hometown, to Smyrna. Hometown boy returns in triumph. Okay? In fact, let's go to the next one. They apply to him, Evan Mosvabonim, Haisa You all thought I was crazy. Ha ha. And he settles down in Smyrna for a while. He's charming. He's charitable. He gives away a lot of money. That's why a lot of people flock to him, the poor. Until Hanukkah of 1665, when, he, when the, the, the manic hits him again, he shows up in Shul. He starts pronouncing the Tetragrammaton, the gods, you know, the Yudkevavtke. Instead of saying Bruchat Hashem, he says, you know, the, the full thing. He eats in Shul, Chelev, which is the Trefa Shmaltz, which is Chai of Karath. Not the kosher schmaltz, the, 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 the regular fats in the animal. Uh, he makes the bracha, as I said before, in the shul. Right? The Lord permits that which is usher. He does some more, I mean, he does some really manic stuff, like he walks over to the Arm Kodesh and whacks it seven times, imitating Moses on the rock, you understand? Uh, at least that's what we think, man. He orders the seven people to get aliyahs. When you make the bracha, you too have to say the shame of Farash. You have to say the, the God's name. And then he sat down in the shoal and they make a party. His followers bring in uh, fruits and mead and nash and he feared a tish. This is about like the first tish. You understand? And each time what happens is the, 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 they come around to him and he touches with his silver uh, staff. He has a, 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 every time he touches a piece of food, in other words, now this donut is holy and you, I give you shirayim. You understand? Now again, you can understand why it is when the Hasidic movement arose and they started doing so many things. So, oh, this is Shabtai Tzvi. Now it wasn't. It wasn't. But you hear that they, they say, we've, heard, we've been down this road before, so to speak. Um, but it gets uh, wilder than that. On Saturday morning, Shabbos morning, he went to the main shul where the scholars were, uh, the Portuguese shul. Now they had uh, locked the doors. He took an axe and whacked it, hacked it open. And he walks in, he stopped at Tefillah, and he says, Today you don't have to daven. They're holding my nishmas. He says, That's it. Uh, he s- sings a few songs. He does all kind of totally weird sort of thing. He was in one of those moods. Now, the problem is, he had a big following. By the time he did it, he's followed by a mob. He has frenzied followers. The Portuguese show was the show of the big rabbis. In Izmir and Smyrna, by this time, you'll be shocked to hear the rabbis didn't get along with each other. And so there were two big Tamiyacham, uh, Rabban Lapapa, and the other Rechaim Ben Benisti. Maybe some of you Rechaim Ben Benisti. He wrote the Knesset Gedola, which is a fairly often used safer, the Knesset Gedola. These are the two leading Sephardic uh, rabbis of the 17th century. Um, but they're fighting because each one is a big scholar and they can't get along with each other. So the community tried to make some kind of a peace by saying like this This one handles all the Choshen Mishmik questions. And this one handles the other stuff, the Yeruday and the Evan Evzer questions, you know, marriage and divorce and things like that. As for Orachim questions, that's beneath the dignity of a, a, of a rabbi to deal with. So, um, in those days. So anyway, uh, but the problem is, you know, this, you know how people are. What do you hold? He said this, he said this, so they don't get along with each other, but they don't like Shabtai Tzvi. And so, they say, this is terrible. Uh, get out of here, stop doing this. But the mob there immediately threatens their lives. But Aaron Lapapa flees. He leaves the city. Right? I mean, right then and there, he gets out. He, he, it's a whole story. He escaped through. Uh, there was another guy in the shul who didn't believe in Shabbat so He said he didn't believe him, and the mob was out to get him, and he jumped through a window, and he barely made out with his life. It was quite a scene over there. 
Chaim ben Benisti switches and he says, now I believe it's Shabtai Tzvi. He's a Mashiach, he bows down to him and all the rest of it. This is a bad episode in the career of the Knesset Gdol. A year later, when Shabtai Tzvi will convert, then the Knesset Gdol says, I was wrong, I'll go back to square one, it was a mistake, let's move on. You understand? But the other guy, uh, uh, so I'm just trying to show you the power that happens when you have a... Shabtai himself never laid a finger on anybody. But when you have this charisma, it's a dangerous business because you have all these followers that are doing crazy things. Okay? Um, and you have this phenomenon of the prophecy. Let's go to the next one. Look what it says in the first one, in the prophecy of Joel, of Yoel. It says, uh, I'll come to pass, I'll pour out my spirit in all flesh, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your elders will dream dreams. The time of Mashiach, everybody will be prophesying. In Smyrna, later in Salonika, later in Istanbul, a place like that, I told you before, you have this phenomenon of people that actually prophesied. They said things they couldn't possibly know otherwise. We don't know to this day, or at least I don't know to this day, how that happened. It goes to show you something weird is in there that a regular historical analysis can't quite get at. Right? There, I, I hear the voice of reason, okay? I'll repeat what I just said before. You see things that are happening that the, that the his regular historical analysis can't get at. It can't be in there. Even Yaakov Endin writes about this 100 years later. He says, this must have been a work of the devil, the Sidrach or whatever. Now, th- there's got to be something to it, but I, but I don't know. Because how does a servant girl... You know, stand up and start quoting the Zohar, you know, which you don't know. You know, I mean, seriously. So, times were crazy. Now, furthermore, as I said before, 1666 is a year in which in Christian Kabbalah and Muslim Kabbalah, meaning in their religious stuff, uh, was supposed to see the coming of Mashiach. In Turkey, the government at this point is in the middle of a long war with the European states, but Turkey was usually winning. Turkey had gone through a period of, uh, what's the right word? Uh, not rise, but... Uh, when, uh, decadence, that's it. It goes a period of decadence. Let's go to the next one. And all these sultans were spending all the time in the harem. But then they uh, appointed these grand viziers from the Kaprulu family, father, son, grandson, and they turned things around. Uh, Turkish style. They chopped everybody's head off. They put in honest people. They reformed the army, the administration, the taxes, and all this kind of stuff. So the Turkish government this time was very vigorous. Uh, they were invading Poland, to give you an example I'm talking about. They, they almost uh, conquered Austria. Uh, came close to Vienna. I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting... They, they were waging a, waging a major war with Venice, which resulted in the conquest of Crete. So I'm just saying, Turkey was at that time in an energetic kind of mode. The Jews, until now, have benefited from the Ottoman Turkish policy over the centuries because the Jews, unlike the other minorities, had zero political ambitions. One of the reasons the Turks treated the Jews... I won't say with kid gloves, because that's not true at all. They, you know, they were treated like fourth-class citizens. But having said that, they you didn't launch any persecution of Jewish religion is because the Christians who inhabit the Ottoman Empire are always plotting to get their independence back or teaming up with the European states who are fellow Christians. You see? The other minority groups is a similar. If they're Shiites, they're in, in bed with the Iranians who want to come in and conquer the eastern portion of the, of the Ottoman Empire. The Jews, you know, they have no political ambitions whatsoever. Now, the Turks knew... Theoretically, the Jews were waiting for Mashiach, but they said, you know, but that's a pie in the sky. So, Lamaisa, the Jews now aren't, aren't going to bother. And the Jews were loyal to the Turkish Empire, because why wouldn't they be? But now it gets a little tricky, because <laughs> the Mashiach is talking here. Now, synagogues are reciting the prayer for the king on Shabbos, but they're changing the name. Instead of saying Adonenu, Mahmad, Yarum Hodo, 
That's what you used to say. You know, you say it in the shoulder of President of the United States, that kind of thing, right? So, I know saying to Shul Lamalachim. Which, by the way, I see all the Shuls saying nowadays. When I was a kid, I never heard any Shuls say it, but that's a separate issue. Uh, now, when it comes in Shabbos by Musaf, it's Yechi Adonenu, Malkenu, Shabbos Eitri, Melech HaMashiach. <laughs> okay? This can be construed as treason to the Ottoman Empire. You're no longer declaring your loyalty on your religious services to the, to the ruler. Shabtai is openly planning to go to Istanbul and have it out with the Sultan. So let's go to the next one. Here's a Turkey. Do you see where Izmir is on the left? You all notice that? And look where Istanbul is. Not that far away. And what he's going to end up doing... He's going to end up, ta- he's going to end up taking a ship from Izmir through the Dardanelles and to, to, to go to Istanbul to, to have it out with the Sultan. The Jews in Europe are going into a frenzy the say, stage is set for the next act. Here, the next, uh, let's just, this. excuse me? Now let's go back one. Now let's, let's go to the, to the yeah, Gluckel of Hamlin. Have you ever heard of her? The famous author, the writer of the autobiography. I'll do this next time. She has a whole long thing. She's in Hamburg, right, at this time. And her family, they're, they're ready to sell the business and move to Israel. I mean, literally, they'll sell the business 10 cents on a dollar. And they had a good business, too. And she you know, writes about it. It's famous in, in her Yiddish autobiography. So um, uh, the world is facing a crazy moment. And that is something we'll have to do next time. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.